Let's turn in our Bibles, please, to John chapter 10. One of the amazing provisions that God has made for humanity is the provision of leadership. It's one of those things that throughout the Bible God is greatly concerned about. For example, in the story of Israel, the appointment of leaders like Moses, Moses' appointment of elders under God's direction, the appointment of judges in the period when things were going badly and some were good judges, some were bad judges. Eventually, the appointment of a king like David, who was the model leader, was uh, an emphasis, really, on God's desire to provide for his people good leadership that would lead them into the paths of righteousness, that would make sure the people were cared for, provided for, nourished, and so on. One of the ways in which those, sh those leaders were described is with this metaphor, this idea of the shepherd. In fact, even in the Roman world, <clears throat> in the first century, we, we find references in the Roman world to a general who sleeps well at night knowing that his troops are well housed, well fed, and cared for like a shepherd who is satisfied that his flock are secure and are well fed and provided for. So there was a general idea throughout the ancient world that good leadership was like the activity of a good shepherd. The good shepherd looks after and cares for the flock. One of the indictments we saw last time that God has uh, for leadership in his church or in Israel as it was then, but the people of God, was that there were leaders who came along who were false shepherds. They would lead them astray. There were prophets who would come and they would act as false shepherds by giving the people a, a wrong message. They would say to the people, peace, peace, when, when there was no peace. In other words, they would, to use the language of Jeremiah, they would heal the hurt of my people. But they would do so incorrectly instead of telling people the truth instead of looking in the, in the eye and, and telling them where they were wrong and how they needed to repent the prophet would tell them everything is okay it's all going to be all right in the end you don't need to worry about the harsh words of those prophets like isaiah or jeremiah who are telling you that things aren't going to be all right the judgment is coming or the trouble is coming and you need to prepare for it these prophets went around and they healed the hurt of the people of god wrongly by saying peace, peace, when there was no peace. So God is very concerned. He's very concerned for the provision for his people. And in the New Testament, when uh, the early church is growing and mushrooming and the apostles are leading the church and realizing increasingly that they cannot care for individual congregations, they appoint for the leadership of those congregations people who are described in various ways. They're described by a number of words. They're described as episkopos, which means to be a leader. They're described as presbyteros, or presbyteroi is the plural, uh, elders for their 
supposed spiritual maturity. I, I say that because I became an elder when I was 22. I became a teaching elder when I was 22. I, I thought I was very mature then, and I think I was probably very mature then, and I've kind of reverted over the years to what, what I am now. And the third word, which is the important word that I want to stress, is this word poimen, which means a shepherd or a pastor, because their job was to provide for the flock, to care for the flock and make sure that the flock of God was cared for. So you, you find that the elders are told to exercise oversight and they are to feed the flock of God. And all three of the words are involved there. The presbyteroi are to exercise episcopus oversight over by feeding poimen, shepherding the flock of God over which God has appointed them. And one of the ways they do that in the New Testament is, on the one hand, they teach the Word of God, and on the other hand, they defend the church from error and evil by applying the Word of God in the lives of God's people. Those are ways in which the church is provided for, for the leadership of the church. And there is always the danger in all kinds of leadership in the church that that leadership will fail you. Fail you by not providing the nourishing food of God's Word to strengthen your soul in the things of God. Fail you by not having an eye to those dangers that might be lurking from wolves who would come to destroy the flock of God. There's always the danger of being, and this is the picture that's painted here in John chapter 10, those who are leaders being, merely being hired hands. In other words, they're there to do a job and that's all there is to it. And so when danger comes, the person who's only a hired hand is tempted to run away from danger, to avoid the heat and get out of the kitchen instead of staying to die with or die for the flock of God. God is passionately concerned to have good leadership. And in John chapter 10, our Lord Jesus is presented to us, of course, as the leader we ultimately need just as he's called the supreme pastor of the flock. He is the chief elder. He is the one who has ultimate oversight over the flock of God. And all the others are under shepherds, that is, under him, answerable to him, conscious that on the great day of judgment, those of us who are appointed to that kind of leadership are going to be judged all the more harshly. I mean, if there is one overwhelming thought that I have whenever I come to the pulpit to open the Word of God and teach the Word of God, it is this, that one day I shall have to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and answer for everything that I have taught. Have I taught you error? Have I led you into evil? I will be answerable. And as a body, the elders are responsible because you understand that when the minister stands up to preach the Word of God, he is standing as one of that group of leaders in the church of God. And in a sense, I give voice to what we corporately believe. And I give voice to what God is saying to the church as he's revealed it in his Word. 
So it's a very serious business for those of us in this position. It's a serious business for you because you don't want to be misled. You don't want to be starved or overfed or undernourished or misdirected or taken away by, snatched away by wolves because of our carelessness or whatever. Well, into that context then, we look now at John chapter 10, where Jesus is presented to us as the good shepherd. There are a couple of metaphors that he uses. He calls himself the door of the fold, that is, he's stressing that the sheep find exclusive, absolute access to the company of God's people through him and through him alone. He is the door to the fold. You want to belong to the church, you want to belong to the flock of God, then you have to come to God through Jesus Christ. He is the door. He's the only one through whom you can come and find yourself accepted and part of the family of God. And then twice he uses this expression, the good shepherd, in verse 11 and verse 14. And he calls himself good, of course, here in comparison to those who are bad, in contrast to those who are bad. The worthless, the ignoble, the hard-hearted shepherds who are not tender-hearted or noble or good at all. Jesus contrasts himself with those, and he is presented as the model or example shepherd primarily. Jesus uses this exclusive, absolute language about himself. I am the good shepherd. That is the true, the unique, the absolute, the exclusive shepherd. When he uses that language, what he's doing is he's setting himself apart and he's highlighting his office as the Messiah and Savior of his people. Not only because he fulfills all these prophecies that come like a mighty torrent uh, towards him with the tributaries from various parts of the Old Testament all feeding this great torrent of revelation that leads into the Messiah's arrival. Jesus fulfills all of that. But he comes also to give life to his sheep, to be their salvation. Now this evening I want you to come a bit further in this because from verse 14 the shepherd's role is expanded. The shepherd's role is expanded. What is unique is this shepherd's knowledge of the sheep. I know my sheep. We looked into this a little bit last time and we reminded ourselves that he chooses them, he adopts them into his family, he calls them to himself, he cares about their need, he knows them individually, they enter into a personal and covenantal relationship with him, and so he's able to say, my sheep know me. I know them, they know me. They know me to be their shepherd. They know that they come to God by me. They recognize my voice. They recognize my voice. They know what I'm saying. They understand my truth. They want to be in my company. They respond in faith to my word. That's an important thing. I think the biblical background for this idea of knowing, they know me, is in Jeremiah chapter 31. There in Jeremiah 31, we have the announcement of a new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And he distinguishes this new covenant from the past. 
And he goes on to explain what this new covenant is. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will each, uh, each one teach his neighbor and say to his brother, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. They all know the Lord. They recognize him. What do they recognize? They recognize that he is the only savior of God's elect. They recognize that he is the Messiah. They recognize that he is the son of God. They recognize that he has come from God. They recognize he is their savior. They follow him. They listen to him. They listen to his voice. They're anxious to hear from him. The idea of listening to his voice is integral to what it means to know the shepherd. The idea of following his voice wherever he is leading them is integral to what it means to know the shepherd. You cannot distinguish knowing the shepherd and make it some kind of affective relationship of emotion alone. This is a relationship that is cognitive, it involves the mind, as well as affective, it involves the heart. So it's the heart and the mind. The mind, the, the ear hearing, recognizing the voice. The mind grasping what is being said and believing what is being said. And the heart following the mind and the ear in embracing, following the Savior wherever he leads us. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, verse 14. I know my own, my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. So there's that knowledge that is shared between the Father and the Son. They're of one mind and one purpose. There is uh, within the Godhead, uh, the pleasure of the Father is focused on the Son who is the object of his love and the one who carries out the plan of salvation. So the shepherd's role is expanded. And then secondly, the shepherd's flock is extended. Verse 16, I have other sheep, he says, that are not of this fold. I must bring them also that they will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now I think the I think it's right to say that what Jesus is referring to here is the fold which was Israel. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. The fold was Israel. And those other sheep are Gentiles. And what Jesus is doing here is picking up many of the Old Testament indicators that there would be in the last days an incorporation of Gentiles into the Israel of God. Now here when I talk about Israel, don't think about the bit of real estate in the Middle East. I want you to think about the people. Israel is the flock of God. It's the people. It's the individual believers. Believers within national Israel. There are believers in national Israel out there in the Middle East today. There are believers among the Jewish people dotted all over the United States. There are believers amongst natural, is national Israel. 
But there are Gentiles who have come to embrace Israel's God for themselves and Israel's Messiah for themselves. And together, believing Jew and believing Gentile form one flock with one shepherd. That's the picture that's being painted here. This will, work will be done, and Jesus is announcing it here. The Gentile mission basically flows out of this word of Jesus here. And the aim of the work is to create one new Israel, one flock, one shepherd. Paul, when he's writing to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, talks about the dividing wall of hostility that, was, that existed between Jews and Gentiles. And he says the remarkable thing about the work of Christ is that he has overcome that dividing wall of hostility. He's broken it down so that strangers can be reconciled together in Christ and that God is creating one new man, one new humanity, a new society that is composed of Jews and Gentiles reconciled to one another because they are reconciled to God through Christ. It's a remarkable picture. And that picture of a Jewish Gentile merging in the last days is found all over the Old Testament. In Ezekiel, for example, uh, you find it in chapter 34 and 37. Isaiah talks about it in chapter 56. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, including the outcasts of Israel, those among the 12, the 10 tribes that were lost after the Assyrians invaded and the people were scattered and are intermarried and lost in the many nations of the world, the outcasts of Israel. But as well as that, Isaiah says, they include yet others who will be gathered to him besides those already gathered. And Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 37, this new community will have one king. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. So Jesus is claiming to be the expectation of David. He is the greater David. He is great David's greater son. And so the Gentile mission of the church is grounded, not just in New Testament doctrine, but in Old Testament doctrine. This is where the gospel was always going to go. In the clear statements of Jesus, in the hints and outright sayings of the prophets, and in the Great Commission itself to go into all the world and preach the gospel. The shepherd's flock is extended. And what that means is that we have to be a church always that is committed to getting the gospel out to the world, to the world on our doorstep and the world elsewhere on the other side of the earth. We're constantly under orders to get the gospel out to the world because there's going to be one flock and one shepherd. We can never dodge the bullet when it comes to that global mission. So the shepherd's flock is extended. And then thirdly, the shepherd's uniqueness is expounded in verses 17 and 18. For this reason, he says, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now, I guess there's ways you can misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. 
You can misunderstand him to mean that, that Jesus gains his Father's approval by his sacrifice. Or, or you could misunderstand him to mean that, uh, that he is giving up the lesser, that is, his present life, for the greater, that is, resurrection life. But both of those would, uh, in fact, miss the point. Because what he's really saying here, you notice, if you look at it more closely, is that he does the Father's will and he obeys the Father's command by giving his life for the sheep. In other words, the key phrase is at the very end, this charge, literally, this commandment, I have received from my Father. What was that commandment? That I should lay down my life in order that I may take it again. You see, the resurrection is not just a circumstance following the death of Jesus. It is, in fact, the essential completion of his death. In John's Gospel particularly, the passion, the sufferings, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus are all piled together in the way in which Jesus will glorify God on earth. That's the work of Jesus. It's all of one piece. This is one decisive, inseparable, saving action of Jesus in his way to returning to the Father and glorifying the Father's name. I mean, he makes this point clear later on in chapter 12, verse 24, when he says the grain of seed must first die in order that it might be born again, bring forth, spring to life, and bear fruit for God's glory. Now return to these verses again, 17, 18. Jesus says, I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it again. Now what he's saying here is, you see, that the weakness and the suffering involved in the cross was something he chose to do. Freely chose to do. The Father's command that he should come and lay down his life and then take it again, he chose to do it. He is acting in willing submission to his Father throughout. He speaks of having authority. Where did that authority come from? It came from his Father. He goes on to say in chapter 17, you have given me authority. You've given the Son of Man authority on earth to give eternal life to those to whom he will. And you see that, that sense of authority that Jesus has. When he says, for example, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? As he faces the cross, he says to these people, don't you know that I don't have to be here? I don't have to be here, at least in the way you're thinking that I have to be here. That I have no options. I have options. But I'm denying the options. I'm not taking the 12 legions of angels. I'm here because my Father has commanded me to be here. To lay down my life for my people. When he's in front of Pilate, what does he say? You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Pilate's authority to have Jesus killed came from the Father. Jesus, you see, 
He's very conscious of his divine origins, his relationship from all eternity with his father, the, the divine self-consciousness of Jesus. It comes out over and over again. When they come to arrest him, John tells the story. In chapter 18, you remember perhaps as few as 500, as many as 1,000 men come looking for Jesus. They come to arrest him. And as they're coming towards him, do you remember? Somebody says, who is this? Are you the one we're looking for? Jesus says, I am, using the divine name. And they fall like a pack of cards. Something of the divine surge of energy from the Lord Jesus flattens them as Isaiah was flattened in the presence of God in the temple when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. Here is the Holy One of Israel. Here is the Holy One of Israel that Isaiah saw. And here is the Holy One of Israel and these men have come to take him and to crucify him. Jesus is conscious of his divine origins all the time. He never forgets that. That is never out of his mind, but he is also conscious that in his coming into the world, he has come to obey his Father, to do the Father's will. What does he say? He has the power, the authority to lay down his life, to take it off the way you might take off a garment. I won't do that because I get into trouble from the elders. He lays down his life to take it again. Now, isn't this interesting that we're told here that Jesus is the one who takes his life again. It's, as you look at the New Testament, sometimes it's the Father who raises Jesus from the dead in, in that great benediction at the end of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 30. It's, it's God who raised Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd, the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. God raised Jesus. And yet here is Jesus saying that the Son raises himself. I have the power to lay down my life, take it again. Elsewhere you find it's the Holy Spirit who is active in the raising of Jesus from the dead. In other words, in the resurrection, you have the involvement of all of the members of the Trinity, the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are all involved together in the resurrection of Jesus' humanity. And that shouldn't surprise us, because earlier on he said, my sheep hear, or later on he will say, verse 28, 29, 30, my sheep hear my voice, they follow me, I give them eternal life, they'll never perish, no one will snatch them out of my hand, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Why? Because I and my Father are one. One in essence, one in nature, one in substance, one in being. They are one. One God. And yet, though there is one God, there is an order within the Godhead. Look at some of the language that's used here. The idea of the Father knowing him. The, the idea of the Father loving him. Knowing and loving belong together. The Father knows the Son. He loves the Son. If you do a survey of John's Gospel, you'll find that the Father loves the Son. 
He never leaves the Son. He gives everything into the Son's hands. He shows the Son everything that He does. He gives the Son life in Himself so that He can give life to others. He bestows upon His Son glory, something that God the Father will not share with anybody else. He gives it to His Son and He shares His name with His Son. And what you're seeing there is that there is within the Godhead, yes, there is within the triune Godhead, perfect love, perfect unity of being and essence. But you also see that there is within the Godhead a functional subordination within the Trinity. The Father sends, the Son goes. The Father commands, the Son obeys. The Father plans, the Son accomplishes. Everything Jesus did when he was on earth, he did according to the plan of the Father, in obedience to the Father's command. That's what he's saying in verse 18. This charge I have received of my Father. The word charge is commandment, command, and it covers the same area as the Father's will. What the Father wills, the Father commands, the Son does. It is his meat his food, if you will, to do the will of my Father in heaven and to finish the work the Father has given me to do. This charge I have received from my Father. There is nothing self-centered. There is nothing even self-motivated. Jesus comes into the world gladly and obediently and humbly. He comes to do his Father's will. He comes to fulfill the great plan of redemption. Theologians notice this relationship, this conversation almost that's going on all the time in John's Gospel between the Father and the Son, and the Son's language of talking about this relationship. The Father said this, and I'm doing this. The Father told me to do this, and I'm, I'm about this business. And, and you get an insight into what the theologians call the pactus salutis, that is, the covenant of redemption. This great plot and plan conceived before the foundation of the world by the Father, agreed by the Son, and involving the Holy Spirit. That great plan of salvation. Now that leads us just for a moment. Yeah, for a moment. To consider, just for a nanosecond really, the Trinity is a small subject. Uh, Augustine said there is no other subject where error is more dangerous, inquiry more laborious, or the discovery of truth more profitable than in looking at the relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus is claiming here when he says, I and the Father are one, he is claiming to be one in essence and power with the Father. I think we know that from the text. If you look at verse 33, that's how the people listening in who were versed in the Scriptures, that's how they understood it. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Well, well they were right. So they're one in essence. They're united in love for one another within the Godhead. 
And yet, do you see there is this functional order within the Trinity? It's not here in this passage, but, but when the church was reflecting on this, and, and it took them a long time to reflect, they reflected long and hard, they worked with the text, they labored over the text, they disagreed with one another, they argued with one another until they came to a conclusion about what the Scripture was teaching about the nature of God. And they came to this conclusion that God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. There is only one God. There are not three gods, but one God, one in essence and being. And yet they said that within the Godhead there's an order. The Father begets. He is not begotten. The Son is begotten. He does not beget. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So there's a movement outwards from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. This movement, this movement within the Trinity is there from the very beginning. It's part of the very nature of the Trinity. It's when there was nobody else, this is part of the nature of the Trinity. God, who is one in essence, operates this way. The Father initiating, the Son moving out, and that's certainly true when it comes to the whole story of redemption. Jesus would have echoed the language of Psalm 40. It was a cry of his heart, I'm sure. I delight to you, do your will, O oh my God. Your law is written in my heart. We know that because he said in John 4, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish the work. In Galatians chapter 4, he was made under the law, which meant that part of his redemptive activity for us was that he would obey the law that he was the author of. That in his humanity, he would obey the very law that he gave to Moses. So that at his baptism, when John protests, Jesus says to John the Baptist, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for me to fulfill all righteousness. This is what's on his mind in Gethsemane when he is wrestling with all that's involved, not simply in crucifixion. That was small, that was small cheese in comparison to the idea of becoming sin in that three-hour black midnight, midday midnight where he takes our sin and he who is righteous becomes sin for us. And you remember the capstone of that moment was when he comes to the place where he says, Father, not my will, but your will be done. It's very important that we get the doctrine of the Trinity right. There are moves afoot within the church today by well-meaning people with the very highest of intentions to try and explain the Trinity in a way that is more accessible to postmodern minds. I want to read what that sounds like from one of those folks. Listen, this is what they say. The life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. When we delight and serve someone else, we enter into a dynamic orbit around him or her. We center on the interests and desires of the other. That creates a dance, particularly if there are three persons, each of whom moves around the other two. So it is, the Bible says. Each of the divine persons centers upon the others. 
None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring out love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, rejoices in the others. That creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. The early leaders of the Greek church had this word for it, perichoresis, from which comes our word choreography, literally to dance or flow around. Now, I think the language there certainly connects with contemporary sensibilities. The problem is that when you look more closely at that language of the dance, I think of some of our Scottish country dances, which I'd love to teach you sometime, not in church obviously, but uh, some night, uh, you'd enjoy them, but you dance around one another as you're going around. It's kind of yeah, it's good fun. And that's the image that, that's, that's being painted by this author here. It's divine dance. Now, the problem is, if you imagine what he's describing, if you imagine it, if you imagine these three people dancing in a circle around one another, they are losing their identity as they move around each other. The flow is circular. They are concerned or absorbed in each other, adoring each other, loving each other, desiring that each other be pleased, and, and so on. Now, now I, think, I think the intention behind that image is to convey the love that the Father, Son, and Spirit have for one another. But in fact, that picture bears no resemblance whatsoever to what has been revealed in Scripture about the movement of God. The movement of God is not circular. It is always outwards from the Father, outwards through the Son, by the Spirit, always moving out from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. The Father begetting, the Son begotten, the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, outwards, outwards to the world. The Father initiating, the Son acting, and sending the Spirit. It's the Father having a plan of salvation, the Son coming to accomplish the work of salvation, the Spirit applying the work of salvation. The movement is a movement outwards, ever outwards. Yes, the Father delights in the Son, the Son delights in the Father. The way He shows His delight in the Father is that He does what the Father commands. The one image certainly serves the egalitarianism of our day, but it does not reflect what the Bible teaches about the nature of God, and it threatens, in fact, our understanding of the deity of God himself, the very essence of God as one in three, three in one. We constantly have to remind ourselves, Athanasius put it like this, I, when I think about God, I think of the one, but I can't think of the one without thinking of the three. And when I think of the three, I can't help but think of the one. That's the way we are to think about God. You say, that makes my head sore. Yes, it does. The reality is that you cannot find 
a model. The church has tried all kinds of things. We've had 2,000 years to try and find a simple way of describing God. All we can do is use the language the Bible gives us to describe God as Trinity. You cannot make it a popular, populist idea. And of course, so many other things are built upon it. The Son says, I have authority to do this. Who gave me the authority? My Father gave me the authority to do this. That's the way it is within the context of the Trinity, this great movement. And it's a movement outwards from God towards us. That's how it's described in redemption, this functional movement within the Godhead in the way of salvation and the plan of salvation, the Father choosing, the Son calling, the Spirit indwelling. The Father planning, the Son accomplishing, the Spirit applying. This movement, a movement out towards you, his people, a movement from God out to bless you. Isn't that amazing? That in the very nature of God is this desire to reach out to you, his people, and to bless you with every spiritual blessing that there is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, our great shepherd of the sheep, to whom you have given authority on earth to forgive sins, to whom you gave authority to lay down his life and to take it again, this charge he received from you, Father. And we thank you that all of that work was done for us and for our salvation. We pray that we'd be very careful uh, to resist attempts, uh, perhaps well-meaning attempts, to try and communicate with people of our day and generation in a way that is acceptable to them and resonates with them, which also threatens the language of the Bible where you've revealed yourself. This is holy ground. And we pray, Father, as we come to you through the Son, by the Spirit, that we would glorify you in the way revealed in Scripture. For us to reveal. We thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus and your love, Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit in that order of grace. We pray that you would be pleased this evening uh, to enlighten our eyes and help us to grasp this and to praise you for it. In Jesus' name.